Hi, guys. We wanted to take a moment to let you know that IntroVet's podcast has got merchandise. Woohoo! We are so excited about this. Mm-hmm. We've got four shirts to choose from, a logo shirt, some great catchphrase shirts, and also by popular demand, the feline chili pepper rating system artwork by Stacy Scrimpshire. We've got that on a shirt. We've also got the chili pepper artwork and posters and stickers, and we're really excited about it. To order the merchandise, go to our website. It's introvets.com. Click on the merchandise link at the top of the page. And we've partnered with Carrie at Comice Omai oh to be able to offer this. Deadline to order is June 16th. So don't forget. I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, hello. JJ and I are recording together mm-hmm. in the podcasting closet, mm. which she has added more decor to since the last time I was here. I unpacked some boxes. It is, like, we need to post some photos of this because it is, you know, something else. It's my childhood. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuffed animals, lots of like Star Wars-themed stuffed animals, and they're all staring at me, and their eyes follow you when you move. I got an angry bird stuffed animal staring at me with some eyebrows right now. I know. Have I ever told you about when I was a kid? Like, I used to have a big problem. Used to. I still do. Have a big problem with worrying that objects are mad at me. Have I ever told you that? Mm-mm. Yeah. When I... <laughs> like, when I was a kid... Um, and I had, like, a lot of stuffed animals. I would worry that, like, the ones that I wasn't playing with would feel, like... Left out? Correct. Yeah, I had similar. I don't... Like, I don't know. I, I had a, <laughs> I don't know um, if that's... I think that might be pathologic. I don't know. <laughs> if you see that Garfield up there with yeah. the busted eye, uh-huh. I had that thing when I was a kid, and, like, I made it a fake litter box. Okay. And I had a blanket, yeah, and it had fake little food bowls, <laughs> and I towed it. I mean, like I wanted my parents to get me a pet carrier to put him in because right. I couldn't have a cat. He was my cat, yeah, and like yeah, he was. Uh, I still have him. His tail's been sold back on. He's missing part of his eye, but <laughs> that was my my pet. He's still kicking. He's still kicking. He looks a little rough, <laughs> but mm, a little bit, yeah. He old, that's for sure. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, so, back on topic, back on topic. So, today, we are going to tell you about some important studies that have come out, and then we're going to give you an important update from the FDA, and then we're also going to go back and revisit a couple of cases that we have presented before to give you important clinical updates about those disease processes. So, buckle up, because it's a Did You Know episode. (laughs) JJ is going to start us off. All right. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how does attire affect a client's perception of veterinarians, which I find this kind of interesting. Attire, like clothing. Yeah, not like a tire. Not like a tire. Is my accent coming out? Yeah, it was a little. My (laughs) attire. Like I wrote the outline and at first I was like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Oh, shit. Attire. I got you. Yeah, Ben Ben likes to clue me in every now and then with my Huey Town shows. So, yeah, it's not a tire that you, you know, roll around in a car on. Inflate. It's attire. Attire. Your attire. Mm -hmm. Or your fit. The 
young kids are calling it fit. Like instead of outfit, it's just fit. I'm too old for that. I don't know what you're talking about. I, don't, I got it from TikTok. I don't I don't know either. Good Lord. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> anyway. So there was a study published in 2020, the year of our loveliness. Our pandemic. Uh-huh. Yeah. In the uh, veterinary journal. So 505, that's an interesting number, clients mm-hmm. completed a survey regarding veterinary attire. And uh, the clients viewed faceless models in different attire. Overall, the clients felt more comfortable with and had more trust in the competency of veterinarians who wore surgical strips, which, I mean, I'm all for because they're comfy and they clean yeah. well and they dry fast. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about this study. We go ahead and finish mm-hmm. hearing the findings and then we'll talk about it. Clients felt less comfortable with and had less trust in the competency of veterinarians who wore business in casual attire. Uh, white lab coat increased client comfort and trust in competency, no matter what else the veterinarian was wearing. And scrubs plus a white lab coat combination scored the highest. Hmm. So like in the hierarchy of veterinary attire, as far as clients perceived competency and their level of trust, scrubs plus white lab coat was like at the top, Mm -hmm. then scrubs only, and then casual outfits were were below that, even if they had a white coat on. Mm -hmm. And then... Like, the white coat added something no matter which outfit they were wearing. So I thought this was interesting. So I'm actually relieved by the findings of this study because scrubs plus a lab coat is, like, my preferred attire. Mm -hmm. Or in the summer in Alabama, just scrubs because, damn, y'all, it gets hot here and I can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. Like, having a long sleeve thing on in the summer, I just can't. Mm-mm. I can't handle it, especially like if I'm at the ER and running around, like there's just no way. So I'm relieved because in veterinary school, we always had this, like this idea beat into us. that was like, you always have to wear professional clothing to the point that like at, at Auburn, there is a dress code where you have to like the men have to wear like a shirt and tie to class, which I think is bonkers town. Mm-hmm. Like it's completely ridiculous. And the women have to wear like, you know, what they call, quote, business casual. And I was like, I can't deal with this, especially the class. Like you're not dealing with animals. But then when we got on clinics, it was like, look, I cannot afford to keep replacing these clothes, man. Like when you're down on the ground rolling around, the dog is like, you know, alligator roll, scratch, Mm -hmm. you know, vomit, pee, like the stuff that you would just get on your clothes. Like scrubs are made to like tolerate that beating and go through like mm-hmm. a washer dryer with bleach and stuff and like dress clothes are not. Yep. So I don't I've always been freaked out by that. And I've never understood just comfort wise, like how other women can wear like heels and stuff in clinics. I'm just like, I can't do this. In my uh okay, so in veterinary school on rotations, you were not allowed to wear tennis shoes you had to wear dress shoes all the time like it was in your stuff like your syllabus or whatever for each rotation would be like you will be deducted a letter grade if you were ever caught wearing non-dress shoes with the exception of being like if you're standing in surgery or whatever it made me so frustrated to the point that eventually like as it got longer into clinics i just started wearing tennis shoes and dared anyone to say anything about it because like 
I have terrible plantar fasciitis. And if you're, you think about being on clinics, you are standing all the time, running around all the time, doing that in flipping heels. No, I can't. Some people did it. Congratulations to them. But like, I Mm -hmm. do not have the body that is built for this. Like, I finally was just like, yeah, you know what? Take a fucking letter grade. I don't give a shit. You know, like at this point. So anyway, clearly I have not emotionally recovered from that. I have a lot of built up resentment still. But anyway, like that carried over into into practice. And at first I did try to wear like a business casual and have a lab coat on. And then when I'd go to surgery, I'd try to change into scrubs. And it just, it was like, impo- like, no, I'm not. I, it, I made it like two months. Ain't nobody got time for that. I don't have time for it. Now, I do worry that like, if you were doing a lot of surgery, like abdominal surgery, like bone surgery, like major type of stuff, that the scrubs that you're wearing to see patients in probably should not be the scrubs that you do surgery in Mm -hmm. is that the reality though it super is but like i think it is something for us to keep in mind like we should probably have before you go into major surgery you should probably change into completely brand new scrubs before you scrub in and wear your gown and everything like you probably should do that but like as far as getting on the ground and messing with animals and getting just like bodily fluids and gross shit all over you like scrubs are designed to take a beating and still like hold up Mm -hmm. and so anyway yeah dress shirts or not absolutely not and i mean i've worked at places where the doctors wore business casual and when they wore scrubs and they're always seem happier when they wore scrubs but yeah i don't think i could i don't think i could hack doing nice dressy stuff at work It's it's just well and i have always felt like in some ways it's discriminatory Especially when I think about women like mm-hmm. myself who have non-traditional body types or like uh, body types that are not like the ideal of like traditional white beauty standard or whatever. Yeah, you can't hop down to the thrift store and find something that would fit you perfectly. Uh-uh. Yeah, and and like what they call so what they call straight sizes, which is basically like. Anything from maybe like a 14 and down or depending on the store, maybe like an 18 and down, you can find a lot of inexpensive options. But the options, especially back when I was in vet school, it's gotten a little better now. But like the options for people that are in the 18 size 18 plus range, which I've been almost the entirety of my life, with the exception of when I had hyperthyroidism. And when I was a child, those two times aside, every mm-hmm. other time I've been above an 18, like it's expensive. Cause mm-hmm. like if you're going up to Lane Bryan or something, like, mm-hmm. you know, those shirts, just a shirt up there. It's yeah. like five cupcakes for that shirt. And I'm like, shit, uh-huh. like I can't deal with this. And they also um, aren't the best. They don't, they don't hold up very well. Right. And it'll be like dry clean only or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm not taking like my peed and vomited on nice sweater to the dry clean like no (laughs) like no this needs to like get the shit washed out of it (laughs) literally what was that that movie um oh gosh i'm gonna blank on it um the girl had to take her garment to the dry cleaner because it had um uh wait hang on um it's got like a cameron diaz is in it and um the stain that's on it is like a Monica Lewinsky stain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. This plot sounds familiar, but I don't 
remember. Was it a Sex in the City episode? No, it was a movie. Okay. I don't remember. It's it's hilarious, but it just when you said that, it reminded me of that because, okay. of course, I'm old and I can't remember the uh, name wait, of it. Well, you know, it's, it's very, I'm sure everybody just Google it. I know there's It'll probably be, like 18 people. Actually, right maybe now going, be careful this? how you Google that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So just, uh, sure. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm really relieved that clients find veterinarians and scrubs to be trustworthy because that's super what I wear and like mm-hmm. I don't want to have to go back. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we probably have like the the people on the human side to thank a little bit for that cuz I mean you go to on it's money on the human side and it's you find it kind of it's rare that they're wearing maybe if it's like a the older guys do. Yeah. So the reason that they went away from like shirt and tie and all that in in medicine and went towards scrubs is because ties like spread fucking germs all over the hospital. Uh, I can see. You think that. about like a tie, like a men's tie, it's not really something that gets laundered a lot. So they wear it all day. Like they put their stethoscope around their neck. The stethoscope has touched people. Now it's touching the tie as they bend over to examine the patient. The tie like drags across people. It gets stuff on it and then they come home, take it off and hang it up and then they wear it again. <laughs> you don't really wash ties, Mm-mm. right? Like you can dry clean them. But so anyway. Ties, if you look up the studies, ties have been associated with uh, the spread of infection in hospitals and stuff. And so that's why you only see like super old clinicians still wearing them because like it's bad for patients. So anyway, Mm -hmm. wear your scrubs, y'all, is fine. Mm -hmm. But change them before surgery, right? Yeah. And please wear like a little jacket or something when you're prepping that you can take off. Yes. You don't get fur all over your stuff and everything. And in dentistry. Oh, definitely. Yeah if, you're, yeah, if you're in dentistry, you need to be wearing protective equipment because you think about you're getting all of that gross shit uh, aerosolized. You don't need to be breathing in. You need to be wearing a filtration mask. You need to be wearing eye protection and you need to be wearing something covering your stuff that goes immediately in the wash because, I mean, you're just getting showered in bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gross. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, JJ, when you were reading this the study information you mentioned that they only used caucasian models they only mm-hmm. used white models so like i thought that was weird mhm yeah and i did uh read through the study and i didn't really see any like explanation of that it's possible i missed it uh because i am really tired but when i when i was reading through it i didn't see anything like that so I'm guessing they tried to do it so that everything would be uniform and they could take out like racial or ethnic uh, discrimination from the thing and literally just focus on the clothes. I'm guessing that's why. But like, I do think it would be interesting to see a similar study done in multiple ethnic groups with like the same clothes options and stuff. And then Mm -hmm. maybe even with different body types. Yeah. Just to see. Is there a different? Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. And inclusive. Yep, it would be. It would be inclusive. Yeah. So, yeah, if anybody has any thoughts or opinions on that, feel free to let us know. And we will post the link to the study in social media, everywhere you can find information on yep. us. And on the show notes. Show notes, yep. Okay, so the next thing that we want to talk to you guys about is an important guideline issuance from the FDA. Veterinary drug compounding has 
always kind of been a hot topic. And for the past 20 years, the FDA has been working on publishing guidance for veterinary drug compounding. Well, they finally have actually published it. Better late than never, I guess. <laughs> right. So in in looking at this topic, I got a lot of important information uh, from a Venn News Service article by Edie Lau. And I, I think that that is the correct pronunciation. And if I am off, please let me know and I will uh, correct that. The article was published on April 21st, 2022, and we will link it on social media and in the show notes. So drug compounding includes any type of altering a drug. So that could be altering drug dosages, forms, or flavors, and we're usually doing that for a particular patient. It's important to know that what the FDA put out is guidance, not regulations. They already have regulations, and those regulations largely say that it's illegal to compound. <laughs> and yet we do it all of the time. <laughs> you ain't got a choice most of the time. So what these guidelines are basically saying is, here are the situations where you're breaking the law, but we probably won't pursue it, versus you're breaking the law and we will pursue it. <laughs> Which is, if you think about it, kind of fucked up. Like, why wouldn't you just change the law? But anyway, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So this is guidance, not a list of regulations. All right. The goal was to basically outline circumstances under which the FDA will not stop the compounding of veterinary drugs using raw active ingredients. It's, again, technically illegal, but everyone does it. So. As long as there is a medical rationale, veterinarians are given pretty wide berth regarding compounding for individual patients. Okay, that's in these in these guidelines. But these guidelines are more restrictive regarding compounded medications that are, say, shipped to the office and distributed to a lot of patients. So I'm thinking a common one is metronidazole. Okay, metronidazole tiny tablets. If you need to give it metronidazole to puppies or kittens or to like cats in general, it's difficult to give them the 250 milligram tablets. You got to cut them into tiny pieces. It tastes fucking gross. It's like poison. Those tablets are brittle. They just fall apart. They're hard to quarter. So you know what? You can order these little bitty tablets, you know, that come in like 25 or 50 milligrams and stock them and then give them out. Now, that's not legal. People do it, though all of the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, these guidelines do not authorize that. So that's important to remember. Okay. What they have done is they have started a list of drugs where they're saying these particular drugs in bulk form, we are going to kind of like look the other way and not do anything to you if you use them. Okay. But then there's others that we are going to crack down on you for. So we will post the link to that list on the FDA site. If you work in a veterinary clinic in America, you need to look at this list and make sure that you are aware of where you guys are, are meeting regulations and where you're not. Because I don't know this for a fact, but the fact that they've put out guidance to me means now they're going to start enforcing it, right? Mm -hmm. They've kind of been lax about enforcing it. I don't know. I would just, my cautiousness is pinging yeah. a little bit on mm -hmm. that. So I would be super careful. Red flag. Yeah. So now what they consider to be good rationale is like medical stuff. 
It is important to note that compounding for cost savings is not considered a good rationale. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) neither is the practitioner or client's preference for a drug. So, for example, if your client, say you have a patient that needs something in liquid form because the client prefers to give it that way, but it's not on that fancy list, mm, technically you shouldn't do it. (laughs) That's not going to be cool. But anyway, um, so everyone needs to read that list. So now this list of, quote, approved substances, again, they're not really approved. They're just like, we're not going to enforce this on these, is not static. It's going to change over time. And if you want something added to the list, there is a form that you can fill out on the FDA site to see if they can add it. Along with this list, they have a list of stuff that they considered but rejected. So you might want to check that list too before (laughs) you send in another recommendation. Okay. And again, we'll post the links for all of those things. So one important thing uh, in in this new guidance that hasn't really been addressed previously is recommendations for reporting adverse drug events in compounded medications. Uh, Before now, the FDA has kind of said, well, like, we don't regulate that necessarily, so you're going to have to report those issues to whoever compounded it and go from there. But now they're saying, report it to us Hmm. and whoever compounded it. And there is a new form to do that. It's form FDA 1932A that is available online. So if you guys are seeing medication reactions in patients on compounded medicine, that includes treatment failure. So if you have something compounded and and the animal was not improving like you expect and changing to a a non-compounded formulation works instead, that, that is technically an adverse event and it does need to be reported. So like, for instance, if you were doing like a transdermal medication in a cat and it didn't have any effect. That's a great example, JJ. I've seen that happen a couple Mm -hmm. of times where we've gotten compounded methimazole. There was even one case where I had a cat on compounded methimazole combined with amlodipine because it had hypertension and hyperthyroidism. And that cat did great for like a year and a half. And then all of a sudden started doing terrible and it wasn't absorbing the meds anymore. And when mm. we switched the cat back to oral, it, it went back to normal. So, mm. yeah. So now under this new guidance, if that case had happened now, I would need to fill this form out and let them know about it. So now we're going to kind of transition over to some clinical updates. And the first one we're going to talk about is heat stroke. So we presented the case of heat stroke in a dog last season. It aired on September 1st, 2021. It was titled, That's Uncool, which, haha, that's kind of funny. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to make that yeah. pun, but it did happen. <laughs> Probably in bad taste. Okay. The, I think it's funny. So listen to that episode if you want a detailed review. We're not doing a whole case on it. Right. We're just giving a couple updates. Exactly. So those updates are cooling methods. Best practices include misting the patient with cool but not cold water and placing them in front of a fan. Wet hair can act as insulation, so a thick coat might need to be shaved. You know, if it's an emergency, do what you got to do. Yep. So those are things that are recommended. Let's talk about what's not recommended anymore. That would be ice packs, ice baths, cold water enemas, gastric lavage, 
placing wet towels on the patient. It slows evaporative and radiative cooling. Placing rubbing alcohol on the foot pads, penna, or other thinly haired areas. So this is something that I know was ingrained in me when I was in school. Yeah. That and throw them a couple of cold water. Right. We're not going to do either one of those things mm. anymore, JJ. No, we always have yeah. to change things. And the, the alcohol thing has kind of been going back and forth for a while. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading the sources, it was pretty definitive. Like mm-hmm. multiple ones were like, don't do this anymore. Don't do it. And yep. here's why. Mm-hmm. Promotes peripheral vasoconstriction, which limits the patient's ability to dissipate heat. It will absorb... The alcohol systemically? Yeah. So in one source that I found for this update, they said that the alcohol might even become systemically absorbed because when patients are in heat stroke, they are extremely vasodilated. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that vasodilation from the pathologic effects of heat stroke might actually cause systemic absorption of the alcohol. That Mm -hmm. was... One source that said that, but multiple sources talked about not using it because the alcohol can then create vasoconstriction, mm-hmm. which will minimize the, the heat dissipation. That makes sense. So anyway, both of those reasons is yeah, this why we don't want to do it. That's scary. Yeah. And of course, corticosteroids are not recommended for heat stroke because there's no proven benefit and because of GI irritation or bleeding. Mm-hmm. And this is also interesting. It's a good idea to use a sterile technique when dealing with these patients. Um, they can become very immunocompromised. Yep. So uh, you don't want to introduce anything that's going to come back and bite them in the butt later. Right. I would treat them like a part of a patient. Wear mm-hmm. gloves and a mask. You know, if you're messing with their catheter, make sure that you're washing your hands first. You know, like all of those important mm-hmm. things. Just they're they're not immunocompetent, mm-hmm. these guys. Yep, got to protect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing you want to do is uh, offer some food or nutrition via tube feeding as long as the pet is no longer vomiting but isn't eating on their own. So make sure they get food in them as soon as possible. Yeah, we got to get that GI tract working again. Mm-hmm. And um, pain control. Preferably with opiates. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't want to use NSAIDs in these patients Mm-mm. because they generally get the bloody vomiting and diarrhea. I think that would be like an ulcer recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but these guys are painful, and we know that from heat stroke uh, victims, uh, people, heat mm-hmm. stroke victims. So, yeah, I definitely, after looking at those updates, will adjust how I treat heat stroke moving forward for sure. The wet towels thing was also really surprising because. For probably, I don't know, solidly the last five years, that had been what I was hearing at CE, like cover them with wet towels. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, actually, don't do that because you might be preventing heat dissipation. So, so mist them with cool water, slap them in front of a fan, get those IV fluids going. Yeah. Oh, lay them on a cool surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't submerge them in ice water. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you have plenty of ice packs you've been saving that you can't use anymore, you can put them Kind of where the inflow for the fan is. Sure. It'll help cool that air. Yeah. But you can also, I, you know, what I've done is laid them kind of adjacent to the IV mm-hmm. fluid uh, mm-hmm. tubing to try to help keep the IV fluids cool. But, you know, you don't want them like ice cold either because mm-hmm. we're trying to minimize giant swings. We yeah. just want to get them cooled down to like 103.5, you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. We don't want to put them into 92 or whatever. No. So... 
for those updates, uh, we got some sources together and we will put those in the show notes and on social media as always. Mm -hmm. And then the last clinical update that we have for you has to do with diabetes monitoring in cats and dogs. Now, we haven't really covered dog diabetes as a separate case yet. I'm sure we will. But we have covered diabetes mellitus in cats. That was in season one, the episode titled The Nifflers of Disease. <laughs> uh, that, debuted, that debuted on June 3rd, 2020. In that episode, we briefly mentioned continuous glucose monitoring as like the possible answer for the future of diabetes management. And the future is now. The future is now. So these devices are becoming super common. Okay. So like if you have a diabetic patient that lands at the local ER here in Huntsville, it's getting a freestyle Libre put on it. Okay. Like it will. All right. So. That means that even if you, a general practitioner, or you, a, a technician that works in a general practice, aren't routinely using these on your patients, you're going to be. Because that's mm -hmm. when these dogs are getting, dogs or cats are getting diagnosed, landing at the ER and DKA or whatever, they're getting to put on. Okay, so you guys need to learn how to use these. So the good news is that it's very simple. It's very simple. And I think that CGM is going to be the way to go for mm -hmm. most patients. We're going to talk a little bit about those ones that we don't want to use them in, okay? <laughs> but but for most. So when uh, JJ and I went to CE earlier this year, there was actually more than one CE session completely dedicated just to continuous glucose monitoring. So this is becoming a major thing. And like bottom line here on this, y'all, if you're listening to this right now, <laughs> in 2022, CGM is going to become the main way that you monitor your diabetic patients sooner rather than later. So mm -hmm. continuous glucose monitors or CGMs are super easy to use. I think that they're decently economical, especially when compared to the cost of blood sugar curves. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are some cases where I kind of am like, uh, this is not going to go okay. Most of them I feel like are in the cases where I know that the owner is going to try to micromanage this. And instead of using the CGM, like I ask them to tell them to in the go home sheet, tell them to in the waiver that I have them sign, tell them to in the multiple emails I send, even with all of that, <laughs> some people just can't take it and they want to decrease the insulin on their own or worse, increase the insulin on their own. Mm -hmm. And so client selection for this is, I think, really important. You have to look at these people and be like, look at my face. Do not change <laughs> your cat insulin dose for any reason until you talk to me. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. And and sometimes they'll still flip and do it. And I'm like, what in the hell? Do you not, li you don't listen? Like, come on. <laughs> so look, y'all, um, most clients I have actually had good success with with this, okay? But look, I've had a few y'all that I, I was about to fight them. Like, are you serious? <laughs> After all the stuff we talked about, you still did this. You still did it, even though I said repeatedly and made you sign a waiver and all this. So like, you just have to use your spidey sense, I feel like, mm -hmm. to select clients that will listen, that will actually do what you say. Because, like, damn, girl, like, I sometimes I'm like, are y'all, what, what were you doing when we were going over all of that? And you promised me 
up and down. <laughs> they were thinking about what they were buying at the grocery oh store later. God. Like anyway, okay, so client selection is important. Let's talk about how easy the CGM is. Because damn, it's easy. I wear one occasionally because I have diabetes, okay? And so I manage mine with just nutrition. So every once in a while, it's important for me to go through a two-week period of time where I eat normally and see what my blood sugar is doing. And it helps me know, hey, I need to back off on this particular type of food. Because like, if you're a person and you're varying your diet a lot, weird shit makes your blood sugar go up. It is strange sometimes what will. So anyway. Cats, though, or dogs are going to be on a really specific regimented diet, so this is good. You're not going to usually have any completely wackadoo numbers unless there's some bullshit happening, okay? But so you literally just shave hair on the dog or cat. This is usually right over the scapula, so like up on the shoulder blade that we put it on. You clean the skin first. You put a little tissue glue. And you put it on. There's some great videos on YouTube about how to do this. I'll let you guys Google it, okay, and and look it up. But I know Patty Lathan, uh, the endocrinologist, has got a good video out on on YouTube. So everybody go look at that. It shows you how to place it super easy, okay? And then, uh, then you scan it to get it working. And then there's two ways to scan it. You can use a smartphone app. Most smartphones these days are compatible. If you have an older smartphone, it might not be anymore. In that case, you just get the reader. The reader is a little bit of an investment, but it's not terrible. I mean, it's like probably six to eight cupcakes, something like that. You know, you can order it off Amazon. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's super easy, but I just use my smartphone for mine. And uh, then you scan it. As long as you scan it every eight hours, you have an entire 24-hour history for every single day that the pet wears it. Now, some pets will take them off after a couple of days, but I've had some that go the entire two weeks with it on. And then just the more days, the more time that they wear it, the more information you get. So you can take a look. And remember, when we're treating diabetes in animals, this is different from people, but in animals, when we're treating diabetes, we're looking for two things. Not creating worse shit with the insulin we're giving them, (laughs) aka hypoglycemia. Okay, so we don't want to make them hypoglycemic. And number two, controlling their symptoms, right? So making sure they're no longer PUPD, making sure that to the best of our ability, we have them controlled enough so that their their polyneuropathy can improve if it will, because in some cases it won't. So that's really what we're looking for. You're not wanting the CGM readings to all the time be perfect. You're just wanting it to never be too low and for the pet to have good controlled clinical signs and for it to not be like, 500 all the time or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? So so we want to not be perfectionistic, and that's why client selection is so important. But anyway, when I was at a CE talk with Dr. Lathan, she was saying that what they're seeing is a lot of these animals will drop low and have their nadir or the lowest point of the day overnight, Mm -hmm. which is not something that they had uh, previously suspected would be the case. So that's One of the important things about using the CGM is that you can get a more accurate nadir than a blood sugar curve in the clinic and even more accurate than a blood sugar curve in the home environment because most owners are not going to wake up at 3 a.m. to do a blood sugar check Mm -hmm. on their animal. So in closing, if we're thinking about a hierarchy of blood sugar monitoring for our diabetics, the gold standard would now be a continuous glucose monitor that they're wearing, okay? Next would be a blood sugar curve administered by the owners at home. 
Mm-hmm. Next would be a blood sugar curve administered at the clinic. The reason home is a little bit better is because it's decreased stress and more, more of a time frame because clinic hours are kind of limited sometimes. And then a spot check is a no. Nope, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. The only reason that I would ever spot check a, an animal would be like, say I have a patient I just recently started on insulin and I'm like a little worried they're hypoglycemic, I'd spot check them and just see, okay? But I would never, ever use a spot check to increase the insulin dose ever for any reason, okay? Never, ever. Never, ever, ever, (laughs) ever, okay? If you spot check and they're super low, like 40 or something, you could probably reliably use that to decrease the dose of insulin, but I would still argue that you need a curve or some more information. Mm -hmm. But like never, ever have an animal come in, do a spot check and be like, oh, it's 300, we need to go up. No, because you don't know where that animal's nadir is. Okay, I will now step down off the soapbox, JJ. (laughs) Sorry. All right, well, so those are our clinical updates. JJ, what do you think? I like them. I like them too. It's exciting. It is. It is. Like we live in a damn age where you can use your smartphone to scan your fucking pet's blood sugar. Look, what a world. All right. This is amazing. It might, you know, help with the fact that we don't have a flying car yet. Yeah, that is a little disappointing. Mm. For sure. I feel like that was promised to us in the 80s and 90s that like in the 2000s, there would be flying cars. Mm -hmm. Mm, Frustrating. Or jetpacks or something. But I'll take reading my animal's blood sugar with my phone. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's I'd be afraid good. of a flying car. All right. Well, if you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Totals. Bye-bye.